It's the 1st of June, June 1st, 2023. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston, all ready and set to talk about some news. Let's start with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Lisa, what is his latest appointment? Why is his latest appointment to a board that regulates horse racing and horse race betting immediately controversial? Well, it's because his appointee had some connections to the, although maybe vague, to the House Bill 6 scandal. But Governor DeWine appointed government lobbyist Dan McCarthy to the Ohio State Racing Commission. He would succeed former Ohio Representative Bill Patman, the Democrat from Cleveland. And if McCarthy is confirmed by the Senate, he will serve until March 2027. McCarthy was a former top aide of DeWine, and he was a principal of Partners for Progress, which was a dark money group that was funded with $5 million of First Energy money back in 2017. But McCarthy left the next year, and then he became DeWine's legislative lobbyist. But he does have horse racing experience. He has a stake in a, in a racehorse. He's a director of a group called Get Hot, Stay Hot Racing, LLC. He's been there for several years. But state law does bar commission members from having legal interest in any business that's regulated by the commission. Uh, Dan Tierney, DeWine's spokesman, says McCarthy he should be able to avoid conflicts of interest. Common Cause Ohio Executive Director Catherine Catherine Terser has a slightly different take. She says McCarthy is just a little bit too cozy with Larry Householder's House Bill 6 scheme for her to be comfortable about it. Well, there are millions of people in Ohio. You would think he could find one that is not tainted by HB6, right? I mean, the biggest corruption scandal in the history of the state, one that DeWine has largely not been tainted by, even though he signed the bill that was so stinky and corrupt and at first wouldn't seek to repeal it. But why would you bring in somebody that's tainted by all that for something like this? Why not get somebody who's clean? That's a good question. The guy does have horse racing experience, but, you know, and like I said, his his connection to House Bill 6 is maybe a little less strong than other people. He was not indicted or charged or even mentioned that I know of, so... Yeah, if you want to find people that are tied to the horse racing industry, just head out the thistle down. There's a bunch in the stands. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's that hard. Interesting that he's bringing him back. I uh, That was a surprise. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For all the people who are anxious about issue one, the effort to persuade Ohioans to devalue their voting power on the August 8th ballot, we published a story Wednesday about what they can do to get the word out. Layla, sad to say, the yes people seem much more organized than the no people. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And and to be fair, we, we let people know how they can support either the group that is in favor of issue one and the main group that's against it. The primary yes campaign group is called Protect Our Constitution. I, I think it should be called Protect Our Constitution from yourself. <laughs> yeah, from the voters. From Protect the, voters. the Constitution from the people it's supposed people. to serve. So preposterous. Um, Andrew Tobias provides some information for how to donate on that group's website. Through You can do it through the mail, online, or through a wire transfer. And uh, the primary campaign group against issue one is called One Person, One Vote. It also has a donate tab that operates through Act Blue, which is a progressive political contribution platform. Andrew says that both the yes and no campaigns have sections of their websites where Ohioans can get involved more generally, like you could request yard signs or help 
the campaign's canvas voters door to door. I went looking for that on the one person, one vote site, and, and I, I couldn't find it. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not looking correctly, but, and the website is actually votenoinaugust.org. Um, so, uh, you know, I urge them to put some information on there. I have lots of neighbors who would love to get involved. We'll be talking about tomorrow, but Andrew is going to publish a story, uh, by mid morning on Thursday that gets into the idea that the vote yes people recognize that the vote no people are a disorganized mess and are mm. trying to take advantage of it. And it seems like that's what we're seeing early on. Not a good sign. This election is two months away. <laughs> it's June 1st and this election's on August 8th. When do you get organized and start pushing out the message? Let's stick with issue one for a moment. Laura, how are the people pushing this objectively terrible idea, breaking with all precedent Well, it's the way that they put it on the ballot in in August. And this is from the lawsuit over the wording of it. So there was a Tuesday filing with the Ohio Supreme Court, one person, one vote, which Layla just mentioned is the group against the August election issue, said that there's a bunch of issues with this because it doesn't tell you what the status quo is. It just says they want to elevate the standards. It doesn't tell you, hey, you're at 50% now. We want to push it to 60%. And they listed some past proposals that actually spelled it out. So there was a 2011 proposal that failed. They wanted to raise the judicial retirement age to 75. It said that it currently require them to retire at 70. And then there were 2015 and 2018 redistricting reform proposals that said it's going to end the partisan process, replace it with bipartisan. We all know how that ended up, but at least that was the intention of what people voted for. So they say, hey, you're not being clear with people what they're actually voting to do to their constitution and themselves. Well, as I said, Andrew's about to publish another story, and it will make clear that that's all part of their strategy. It's very intentional, uh, and he'll explain why. Where's the Supreme Court? This has urgency to it. Why are they sitting on their hands and not moving well, this along? a very good question. This is lawsuit number two over the August election. The first one, uh, well, so there's a response to the ballot language case due from state officials this week, and then they're actually challenging the issue of the August election saying it's not legal. You banned August elections. You shouldn't be allowed to have them. So that is also in front of the Supreme Court. Now we know that the Republicans control the court by a 4-3 majority and the Chief Justice is Sharon Kennedy. She has shown in past, I guess, not decisions, but you know what she writes about them and um, that she's very partisan when it comes to these issues. That was very yeah. clear in the gerrymandering cases. Yeah, she, it's party over law. It's very sad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Last time we talked about marijuana legalization, just a few weeks ago, advocates were headed out to collect signatures to put a law on the books for Ohio to get it before the voters. Now we have a new wrinkle. Is there a faster track possibly? There certainly is, and it goes through the Ohio legislature. They have introduced in the House, House Bill 168, the Ohio Adult Use Act. It's bipartisan legislation sponsored by Jamie Callender, the Republican from Lake County, and Democrat Casey Weinstein of Hudson. 
So it's similar to a bill that Callender introduced in 2021 that died in committee. He says, though, that this time Republican lawmakers should really consider passing this because it would give them control of the finer details of this law. They say if the initiated statute, which is currently gathering signatures to get on the ballot in November, if that passes, then the coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol will have control over the finer details of the bill. And this coalition is is a group of medical uh, marijuana companies. Um, Calendar says this is basically an extension of the medical marijuana program. 21 and over can buy marijuana with a 10% tax levied. Taxes go to the Ohio Department of Public Safety, K through 12 education, local governments, uh, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and into the state general revenue fund. People can grow up to six plants per household in an enclosed locked area for personal use only. And then Calendar says he wants to add an amendment that it would allow people to smoke because currently state law, you can't smoke the marijuana. You have to take it some other way, vaping or eating or, or oils or whatever. He says it's kind of silly because they're selling the flower now anyway. So they just make, make smoking legal. But, he, you know, they've got a... a a couple of people objecting to this. Uh, House Speaker Jason Stevens and Senate President Matt Huffman says they are against adult use. I don't understand why they're resisting it because the whole medical marijuana bill came about in a similar kind of situation. There, there was going to be a, a ballot question. Mm-hmm. Voters were going to address it. Legislators did not mm-hmm. want that. So they passed their own bizarro law. It took forever to implement but they had control and that's happening now. They're not going to have control. You would think they'd see the reality here and say, okay, every other state around us has legalized it. We're not crazy about it, but it's coming. Let's at least put guardrails up so that there's safety. And instead they're just saying, nope. And I don't know why they're, they're hesitating. It also would be a big source of tax revenue, which they want because they want to reduce the income tax. It, It doesn't fit with their philosophy, their stated philosophy. Right. I don't know why. Right. It. And, you know, Casey Weinstein, one of the sponsors, he says, we're falling behind our neighbors. People are driving to Michigan to buy, you know, marijuana legally for recreational use. So, yeah, let's get on the bandwagon. It's a it's a billion dollar business. Laura is going to drive up to Detroit to see Taylor Swift next week. She will be bombarded by billboards as, advertising all sorts of ways to get As soon as you drive into the state. My favorite billboard is, I think it says Ohio, but what the, the high has, yeah, is crossed right, out. Right. And yeah, yeah. There, there's some very clever know, advertising there. And they're, they're, it's competitive. They're they'll all deliver it to, to you. Yeah. yeah. It's wild. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next one is the outrage story of the day when former Newburgh Heights Mayor Trevor Elkins pleaded guilty and went to jail last year for using his campaign finance account like his personal checkbook. He agreed not to run for office again until at least 2028. Yet now he appears headed to this November's ballot. Layla, how is that even possible? Well, initially, Elkins had agreed to plead guilty Uh, in exchange for five years probation and a promise that he wouldn't seek elected office again until 2028. But Cuyahoga County Judge Joan Sinnenberg at that time rejected those terms and imposed a different punishment. She gave him a year probation and some other conditions like 30 days in jail and 200 hours of community service. And that change in the plea bargain took that promise to avoid running for office off the table. 
So Elkins fulfilled all the terms and ended up getting released from his probation seven months early. Sinnenberg lost her election last year to Brian Mooney, listeners would probably recall. So Mooney inherited her docket and was the one who made this decision for Elkins. And that permitted him to do what he's doing now, which is launching a mayoral campaign. The special prosecutor, Thomas Vaccaro, who handled this case, had tried to prevent this from happening. He wrote to the court and pointed out that even though Sinnenberg came up with her own plea agreement terms, Elkin still received concessions from the state based on the original terms, which included the state agreeing not to pursue felony charges that would have barred him from public office for life. Had his probation not been terminated early, Elkins would not have been able to run for office as soon as November. So Elkins argues, oh, well, those conditions were void when Sinnenberg went, went her own way with the sentence. So this is what's happening. He, he sent a message to residents on a postcard mailer. He apologized for his crimes. He says it was a mistake. It'll never happen again. Although he kind of says... He didn't know the law precluded him from doing what he did. I don't know. It's it's a carefully yeah. worded letter that apologizes for a mistake while still being able to wriggle free of full accountability, in my opinion. Yeah, but if you go back and read our account of his sentencing, Sinnenberg was having none of that. Oh, yeah. She was she in his face him. saying, it is preposterous that somebody that has been in public service as long as you have can claim you didn't understand it. I mean, he was trying to to play it off as technical glitches and she would not accept that she was in his face that's why i'm so surprised she went later on the him running for office again because she she really drilled into him pretty hard i wonder so, if that term of his of his plea agreement got had fallen through the cracks I don't, I wonder, I'm very curious because I think she thought she was going harder on him by putting him in jail. Um, yeah, but now and he, giving him he, some real community service hours, but maybe she lost sight of that promise, how it had kind of fallen off the table during, during it was sentencing. not minor stuff. He did that. I mean, you don't go to jail for minor stuff. He, he's lucky he did not get hit with felony charges. And remember he dodged and, and weaved and tried to avoid this for what, a couple of years before he finally pleaded guilty, he kept denying he did anything right. wrong and playing all sorts of games. And it's just a staggering turn of events that this guy could be mayor of Newburgh Heights right. again and so, after abusing the public trust the way he did. What he did was mix his personal money and his campaign funds into one bank account and was drawing upon it for his personal expenses. And he argues that he only ever spent his own money on those purchases, not campaign money. But <laughs> right. <laughs> it, 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 it's it, look. I, we we should republish the the story from his sentencing to just show people how clearly Sinnenberg described why what he did was serious and wrong. Interesting. If the citizens of Newburgh Heights elect him, it's on them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Tuesday was the first day anyone could apply to drill for oil and gas under state lands, including Ohio's popular and pristine state parks. So, Laura, how many put eight, in bids? Eight on the first day. We don't have any details, including the identities of the applicants, where they want to drill, details from their proposals, such as signing bonuses or royalty payments or how they're going to handle the water. The The Department of Natural Resources says they're going to put the non-confidential portions of the applications online. So can't wait to see those. Uh, as, soon, as soon as the commission can sign off on a drilling request, the leases could be 
bid out and finalized by October. Um, the Oil and Gas Association considers this a ribbon cutting, just the beginning, right? And I think they, there will be lots more to talk about with this. And, and we'll see this by state law. The four-member commission is conclude, includes two people with knowledge or experience in the oil and gas industry. They have to be recommended by an industry trade association, one person with expertise in finance and real estate, and one person representing environmental or conservation interests. So this is the commission that gets to decide if we have drilling on this in, under the state park. So far, Governor DeWine is saying it's not going to happen on top. We're not going to see it, but it'd be surrounding and then underneath with fracking. I, I think eight shows that there's a yeah. lot of money to be made, that this was a pent up demand. And the minute they could come in the door, they did. And I can't wait to see where and how they want to do this. It's a frightening prospect if you surround all the state parks with drilling equipment and there lots is of a, truck traffic. a lawsuit the ohio environmental council they imposed the drilling bill as it passed they filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that rush legislative process remember the bill that said hey you know natural gas is green energy in ohio was the same one that said that they shall allow drilling not that they may allow drilling so they say that that filing of that lawsuit actually helped them keep them at bay until this point but we'll have to see you know where they're we don't even know i mean this could be under hawking hills i, I assume most of them will be in these um probably south east part of the state where the shale is but i have i mean it could be anywhere there's just nobody looking out for the interests of everyday ohioans it's it's fascinating how how quickly this kind of thing is happening because of super majorities. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Sherrod Brown say online commerce is allowing Chinese companies to avoid paying tariffs that are intended to keep companies based on American soil competitive? And how do you, how do cotton ear swabs made in Cleveland play into the debate? Lisa, this is an odd one. Yeah, Sherrod Brown is introducing the Import Security and Fairness Act. This would close a trade law loophole that exempts packages under $800 in value from U.S. duties, fees, and taxes. But Brown says... Two million such parcels a day enter the United States, and he calls it a backdoor way for Chinese companies to avoid tariffs. So the CEO of uh, U.S. Cotton, which is in Cleveland, but the parent company is in another state, Anderson Warlick says this threatens the U.S. textile industry. He says Timu and other companies ship cheap products without tariffs. He says it's a unilateral disarmament of our customs enforcement, and he says it hurts suppliers that provide the material for his cotton swabs. He says, you know, it hurts the domestic suppliers. It has forced him to import because there's not enough available domestically. And Brown says that many Chinese textiles are likely produced with forced labor in Western China. And he says, we really need to do something after years of misguided China policies. So yeah, this this cotton swab manufacturer, they, they employ 750 people and they say they don't want to go to import their materials, but they have to. So what he's arguing is, is that the Chinese companies have realized if they package what they're sending here in small enough shipments, they avoid paying the tariffs. So instead of sending 
a big box of cotton. They put it into boxes that are worth less than $800 and they skate through and there's tons and tons of these coming into the country. Right, right. And you know, I've been bombarded with online ads for Timu and I've looked at it and you can get all kinds of stuff, you know, for a couple of bucks. Of course, it's shipped straight from China, but yeah, it's like, wow, it's definitely hmm. undercutting a lot of things. That's an interesting workaround. I, uh, I, it'll, I, we'll see if they can figure out a way to regulate it. I mean, you ought to be able to regulate what's coming in through the borders. Uh, they just would have to reduce, I guess, the value of what would be exempt, if anything. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb wanted to use community budgeting in his annual budget this year, allowing residents to help set the spending agenda for a small part of the money. Bibb hoped it would increase interest in government and boost the city's very low voter turnout. Cleveland City Council refused. Layla, might we see this next year in spite of the council's refusal? I think we might, and we'll see it if it comes to, to pass. It We'll see it in a much bigger way than... Than city council than was originally proposed to city council. So the underlying concept here is participatory budgeting. This is when the city sets aside a sum of money for the residents to, de- to determine how how it should be spent in their community. There's some structure that forms around it. There's a steering committee. The members would be selected by the mayor and council, and they would help gather ideas and make sure the voting process goes off without a hitch. It would kind of operate like a board of elections. But residents themselves get the chance to nominate ideas, vote upon their favorites, and then see them come into reality. And the the benefits of this are said to stretch beyond simply giving residents more control over a slice of city finances. The proponents say it invigorates participation in democracy. It could even create a pipeline into local elected office for people who discover that they really love being a part of that change. Well, Justin Bibb got behind this idea really early during his campaign, and he initially wanted to set aside, I think it was $5 million of American Rescue Plan Act money to give it a try. And he eventually whittled that down to just a fraction of that in the hopes that city council would be willing to take a chance on this concept. But council just rejected it out of hand. Their argument was that the people chose them to represent their interests. That's their job. And the people already have a chance to make their voices heard. And it's at the polls when they elect their council representatives. Well, that didn't sit well with the group that had formed to support participatory budgeting in Cleveland. So late last week, they announced that they're going to be seeking to put this on the ballot in November as a charter amendment to let voters decide if they would like to control a slice of the city budget or just leave it to their elected leaders. So they're and they're calling themselves the People's Budget Cleveland Coalition. They're seeking to set aside 2% of the city's general fund budget each year. That in 2023 that would be 14 million dollars. They they need to collect just over 5,900 signatures by early September to get this on the ballot. So city council might uh might regret that they didn't, you know, give Justin Bibb the half a million that he asked for, whatever it was. Or maybe they'll they'll call a special election and change the charter so that you need 60% of the vote to pass it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what government does when it doesn't want the citizens to take action and, and control their destiny. You make it impossible to get things passed. I'm not sure why the council was so opposed to the paltry sum of money that Justin Bibb wanted to to do with this. I mean, it was such a small amount of money. Such a small and they amount. were militant. They were adamant. Like somehow this is our turf and you are not invading our turf. And almost forget you're 
your power emanates from the people. Right. <laughs> if the people want to do this, you should serve them. It's a public servant's job. And instead, they're acting like lords and masters. How dare you cut into my ability to spend money? Blake Griffin was the most vocal, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's still vocally opposed to to this. And, and he's concerned now that, I mean, $14 million would take a real bite out of the budget. Um, Although... What what the story said is in other cities where they do this, they spent the money on the kinds of things that Blaine Griffin yeah. would spend money on anyway, Often, right? Like, that's true. Yeah, they could be for programs or they could be for capital improvements, streets, building repairs, things like that. Um, they could be used for citywide initiatives that every Cleveland resident would vote on or they could be used for neighborhood-specific projects where only the residents of those areas would get a vote. So, yeah, I mean, I, it sounds like in most communities where they've tried this, they have gotten some really worthwhile projects out of it. Yeah, it's it. Look, we we like this idea from the beginning and never understood council's resistance. But it, if it comes to the ballot, you're right. They're going to regret it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our live stream camera on the Cuyahoga River was down for a few weeks, causing consternation for lots of people who regularly check it to see if the bridge is up or down and what the weather is. Laura, is it back? How can people see the view from our yes, camera? It's back on Cleveland.com. We're still working on getting the Rock the Lake site back up and and running, which was an offshoot site we started, I well, we took over, I believe, in 2017. So that was our, our genius idea once we heard about how hard it was to navigate the river because of the Norfolk Southern train bridge there, that it would sit down and only raise once every maybe half an hour to let the boats through. And this is a pain in the butt for all recreational boaters who want to go down the river to go to the flats or come back out, but as well as the the lake freighters that are delivering iron ore to the steel plants and the Good Time 3 and now the Lady Caroline cruise ships. So we thought we'll just show we'll show it from the Music Box Supper Club. And they were nice enough to let us mount a Nest camera there. So we have a 24-7 live stream of the bridge. And you can see the bridge, but you can also see basically the sunsets, the weather, the rowers, the freighters, all sorts of stuff. So people got in the habit of checking this all the time. So now, yes, you can go to cleveland.com slash rock hyphen the hyphen lake anytime and check it out. Okay. I, and I, I know people use it. We've been hearing from people that they can't see it. Actually, Lisa said something about it just yesterday. Like, hey, you guys, your camera's down. I checked Yeah, it. I, I so. got emails from people that were grateful. And uh, somebody wanted to know how to expand the camera. You just hit the little Nest button. So if you want the full screen version. So yeah, it's there. And uh, we're glad to provide this public service to people. <laughs> right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Before we wrap up, I want to address uh, some comments we've been getting about our story on the Bay Village priest who went on the LGBTQ rant on Sunday. Um, I get that there are people in the congregation that support the priest. That's all well and good. We've had follows. We're explaining that. But there are people that are sending us messages that say, you did the story because you're anti-Catholic. And a few weeks ago, when our columnist Leslie Kuba wrote about an East Side golf club and how it treats women as second-class citizens, that club started to tell its members that there were tinges of anti-Semitism in what we did, even though the story never mentions that members are Jewish. 
it, it's a phony dodge to deflect attention, but it's dangerous to lodge those kind of labels at people. There's nothing anti-Catholic. There's nothing anti-Semitic about covering news. We covered in city halls. We covered in the streets. We covered in institutions, cultural and religious. That's what this is. Let's stay away from the labels. That's it for the Thursday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday to close out the week. <laughs>